0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: I, Henry, by the grace of God, having been crowned the King of England, shall not take or sell any property from a church upon the death of a bishop or abbot, until a successor has been named to that church property. I shall end all oppressive practices which have been in evil presence in England. If any baron or earl of mine shall die, his heir shall not be forced to purchase their inheritance, but shall retrieve it through the force of law and custom." Any baron or earl who wishes to betroth his daughter or woman kinsfolk in marriage should fit to consult me first, but I will not stand in the way of any prudent marriage. Any widow who wishes to marry should consult with me, but I shall abide by the wishes of her close relatives, the other barons and earls. I will not allow her to marry one of my enemies. Any wife of my barons who becomes a widow shall not be denied her dowry." She shall be allowed to remarry according to her wishes, so long as she maintains the integrity of her body in a lawful manner. Barons overseeing the children of a dead baron shall maintain their land and interest in a lawful manner. Common seniorages took in the cities and counties, which was not taken in the time of Edward I, shall henceforth be forbidden. I shall remit all debts and pleas which were owing to my brother, except those which were lawfully made through an inheritance. If any of my barons should grow feeble and give away money or other possessions, these shall be honored so long as their heirs are properly remembered. Gifts given by feeble barons under force of arms shall not be enforced. If any of my barons commits a crime, he shall not bind himself to the crown with a payment as was done in the time of my father and brother, but shall stand for the crime as was the custom and law before the time of my father and make amends as appropriate. Anyone guilty of treachery or other heinous crime shall make proper amends. I forgive all murders committed before I was crowned. Subsequent murders shall stand before the justice of the crown. With the common consent of my barons, I shall maintain all the forests as was done in the time of my father. Those knights who render military service and horses shall not be required to give grain or farm goods to me. I impose a strict peace on the land and command it to be maintained. I restore the law of King Edward and the amendments which my father introduced upon the advice of his barons. Anything taken from me after the death of my father shall be returned immediately without fine. If it is not returned, a heavy fine shall be enforced.
0: That voice that you just heard was Matt Whitliff, and my name is Chris Spangle, and this is the History of Modern Politics, and thank you so much for joining us. You can hear all of our episodes at historyofmodernpolitics.com. If you are listening on our public feed, then you can get early access to all of our episodes by becoming a subscriber to HMP Plus, or if you're a We Are Libertarians Plus subscriber, on our Patreon. Thank you so much for joining us. You'll also get all of our reading lists, our detailed show notes, and video of these episodes. So it's a great deal and a great way to support this show. If you're getting value out of this, then give value back to us. We appreciate your time. Now, Matt, what what did you just read? That's a little bit different than our typical cold yep. open. So tell us about that introduction.
1: Yes. So that introduction was known as the Coronation Charter of King Henry I. We'll get to him later in this episode. It was issued in the year 1100. And this charter is also referred to as the Charter of Liberties. Uh, this becomes an important foundational piece of um Maybe not quite legislation, right? But at least custom that will lead us up towards the development of common law and importantly the Magna Carta. So today we're going to explore um, the Norman kings of England. After following up from you know last episode where William the Conqueror came in and and took the crown, so we're going to follow uh, the years from 1066 onward to about 1153 here today.
0: So why, why is this charter important? You mentioned that this is a, this is a change. Uh, we've gone from kind of tribal societies, the, from the Romans to tribal societies, to blood feuds, to the development of the monarchy, and now we're starting to see the barons and earls start to assert their dominance. Why is this a notable moment in English history?
1: Yeah, so um, we'll, we'll get to the meat of this later uh, here as we get going. But, um, you know, we've got a lot of different dynamics going on between the church and the crown, the barons and the crown, and um, an uneasy tension between, you know, what was left of the, the Anglo-Saxon class as well as the new Norman class that came into the aristocracy and trying to figure out the dynamics of, of who's going to be king and what should that king be doing.
0: Yeah, so in the last episode, it's like you, when you watch The Sopranos, you always had the setup episode. Now, this is where you get to the ch- the wholesale change, basically, in the English aristocracy, because the t- 1066 and and William the Conqueror's win at the Battle of Hastings cannot be understated in terms of how it completely changed England, and the you go from the Anglo-Saxons to the Anglo-Normans, from english to french essentially from wars with danes to wars with the french basically uh you know the the french as we've seen in past episodes were all warring with each other and now william comes over and the normans come over to england and take over that property to then use as a base to launch other attacks uh outside of normandy and you see English, the English political system start to evolve, and the ongoing Anglo-French struggles and the reaction of the English aristocracy from that, and it starts to get really good. This is one of my favorite periods over the next few hundred years, you know, from William the Conqueror to uh, the, the Plantagenets, which are all fascinating, the Magna Carta, uh, and you, you see a, a lot of dynamic battles. This is the era that the game of thrones is kind of based on so if you you read dan jones the plantagenets that's kind of the uh the real history version of the game of thrones so that's sort of the period that we're entering here so let's start you know we had a lot of conflict and controversy out of the battle of hastings and and the setup to that matt so you know that dust doesn't settle once conqu- no. William the Conqueror wins, what happens once William the Conqueror takes over and has been crowned the King of England?
1: Yeah, I mean, not really surprisingly, it's not like, okay, yes, everything is happy, we have a we have a new outsider king, right? <laughs> so, the, yeah, exactly. Um, we've got a conquering outsider, and, and William really has to deal with the Anglo-Saxons who are, who are left, the, you know, the, the English people. All, all those
0: uh, earls and lords and landowners who had to make their decision between the French side of the English side, those people who stayed English, they still have power, and they still have to be subdued in the mind of William the Conqueror, Hence, that's right. The name Conquer,
1: yeah. So, so they're not really ready to welcome his rule. I mean, so but William does have at least initially a little bit of balance here. He realizes he's got a, a kingdom now to manage, and so the sons of. King Harold Godwinson, they're, they're exiled, right? Uh, they're not put to death. They're they're just simply exiled, which is, you know, the first sign of at least, you know, some some attempt to <laughs> maintain some peace. Um, other earls are allowed to retain their lands, but, you know, William puts two key Normans into significant places of authority. Odo, his half-brother, if you remember, William is a bastard um, from, you know, an, another woman. So Odo is his half-brother uh, from Baeo, and then uh, William FitzOsbern, one of his close friends uh, and and you know confidants from his childhood, even they come into key roles to help really run the affairs of the government in the name of William. And so William, he's got to get back to Normandy. He heads back over there. Now he's got rebellions escalating on the English side. And that of course makes, you know, some of the, the landowners on the Norman side, also a little feisty and ready to try to take advantage of situation. So, um, but on the, on the England side, Odo and William pretty quickly begin a campaign of building fortified castles through throughout the countryside. So, um, You know, if you think of uh, lots of fortifications and castles throughout the, you know, throughout England, this is the era in which they're they're kind of all beginning to be built.
0: Before this, you had you had large earthen constructions, you had big mounds, basically. And so, you know, if you, you think of like a mound going up and then like a dip in the top where they, they would, you know, that land work. And then at the bottom, yeah. the, there would be kind of another dip, a little valley, and then they'd build a hill and then another little dip for where they could station themselves and down. Now you start to get into wood and stone castles. And the most famous one that William built was the Tower of London. It was, a, early on, it was a wooden structure. And then they built, uh, over the next, you know, decade, the Tower of London, the what, what was called the White Tower and it was an imposing structure especially in london it was the tallest building at the time and it was a message to that unruly city that this is this is where i live this is my position of power it was a fort it was a prison and it was a marvel because it was it was stories high as opposed to and, uh, unlike anything londoners had seen at this point it still exists and the tower of london will become an important location <laughs> for much of english history Uh, But it is really the most famous of William's forts, and it begins the the castle period in England. Now, these rebellions against William came from multiple angles, including the Welsh, the Scots, the Anglo-Saxon nobles who initially retained power by pledging fealty to William, uh, Edgar the Ethling Frenchman. From across the channel, and even King Swain II of Denmark, the grandson of Swain Forkbeard. You know the Vikings are always going to get their uh, get their cut. Um, so he returns to reinforce his position in England after visiting the the mainland and wants to assert his authority. And this is a a tyrannical, horrible period
1: known as what, Matt? Yes, it's known as the Herring of the North. So over the over the winter of 1069 to 1070, he's he's really fed up at this point, right? I mean, rebellions spring up, he puts them down, they come up again, he puts them down, and you know, kind of finally he he's had enough, and he begins a brutal campaign of just ravaging the lands and and murdering thousands. You know, I've heard it somewhat compared to you know Sherman's March yeah. <laughs> in the South in the Civil War, and contemporary historian Orderic Vitalis, who is a, a Norman and and generally in his writings and actually he's one of the you know best uh, primary sources of this period uh, generally positive towards King William, but he described it this way. He said, The king stopped at nothing to hunt his enemies. He cut down many people and destroyed homes and land. Nowhere else had he shown such cruelty. This made a real change. To his shame, William made no effort to control his fury, punishing the innocent with the guilty. He ordered that crops and herds, tools and food be burned to ashes. More than 100,000 people perished of starvation. I have often praised William in this book, but I can say nothing good about this brutal story. Slaughter, God will punish him.
0: Now, I highly recommend Ed West. He's a journalist and an, an author, historian. Uh, he wrote a series of five books um, on the history of England. Peter Aykroyd's books are also great. It's it's uh, it's a bit of a more academic read, but Ed West, being a, a writer for British newspaper, very breezy set of books. And in his book, the ten, in 1066 and before all that. Uh, he wrote the retribution was predictably brutal after William's herring of the north in which the cattle and corn were burned and thousands slaughtered several villages and whole districts ceased to exist altogether. As many as 150,000 were killed and the survivors left so desolate that they resorted to cannibalism. Yorkshire lost three quarters of its population and the north of England didn't recover for centuries so if you think of the 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 area of Britain right below Scotland what's you know Northumbria uh absolutely brutal and devastating uh and I just can't imagine that level of destruction I mean it's just brutal
1: yeah yeah. So, it, you know, if we look at this campaign and his other actions through this, King Williams eventually, you know, replaces the entire nobility and, and the earldoms and the barons of, you know, from Anglo-Saxons into Normans. And and with these changes, we start to see a replacement of the English language with French and Latin now as the medium of government and law. And this, this holds for the, ne- the next three centuries. And, uh, you know, if linguists will look and at least eight other languages that, you know, had previously been common at on the Island had gone extinct and, and English old English was, you know, on the verge of going extinct as well, potentially. But English of course does survive. Um, Peasants still spoke it other. There was enough written literature that eventually it, it kind of holds out and and revitalizes into uh, the class, even of the aristocracy. so the, the the Anglo Normans eventually do adopt, uh, readopt English in, in kind of day to day, but you know, Government and and the legal system and things like that were it was the lingua franca, right? The uh, the language of the, the French was used.
0: Yeah, let's hop back to Ed West's book, Ten Sixty Six, and all that. Um, he writes the biggest impact of the Norman invasion was on the English language, which was replaced by French and Latin as the medium of government and law for three centuries. Now we 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 think back to past episodes. The reason that language was written down, the written word was basically to manage government to keep tallies initially on things like grain and goods and then laws and writs and eventually charters and, and, and government and the development of language are incredibly uh, intertwined. And so now he, he continues, it might've, it might well have gone extinct, but just as at least eight previous native languages of England had been most likely the sheer weight of numbers of English speakers uh, helped it survive so if there hadn't been so many Englishmen that island would be speaking French now he continues today at least a quarter and as many as half of English words are of French origin and the Norman invasion helped to add great nuance to the language French words are usually more formal or aristocratic sounding ascend rather than rise status rather than standing mansion rather than house cordial rather than hardy Almost all words relating to government and justice are Norman, including prison, jury, felony, traitor, govern, and of course justice. Likewise, titles are mostly Norman French, including sovereign, prince, duke, and baron, although not king or lord. And the most famous contrast is between the words for beasts in the field and those on the plate, since English words for animals, pig, scup, queue, survived, while French terms for the dishes, horse, mutton, beef, took over. So words for semi-skilled trades like baker or shoemaker are Anglo-Saxon, while highly skilled, well-paid professions like Mason and Taylor are French. And it's why English has so many duplicate words, because you basically had the melding of two words at the beginning of, of writing, Matt, and it left us... With a complicated language to learn,
1: <laughs> yes, English is is uh, you know notably quite quite complex, right? in all the differences, but it gives us a lot of nuance in the um, in the actual ways that we can talk about things. So, so one one other source uh, that that looks to the extent of these raids and the results of the cultural change is known as the doomsday book. And so this is essentially a census. It's not officially a census, but it's essentially like a census record where that King William commissioned uh, to document all the land holdings uh, throughout England. And it's important to note that, you know, unlike the rest of the Anglo-Saxon uh, predecessors, King William brings a Carolingian French notion of, of royalty to the island in that he he is the supreme landowner He owns all of the land right he views this conquered territory as as his and now we really see the um, cementing of what we kind of think of as feudalism that comes in in this era of of the Norman rule and so he holds all of the land and everybody else is just a subordinate fief. Uh, to to King William as the tenant-in-chief. And so um, as, as we talk about the uh, the commissioning of the Doomsday Book, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us uh, that William said this, after the king had a large meeting, very deep consultation with his council about his land and how it was occupied and what sort of meant He then sent his men all over England into each shire, commissioning them to find out how many hundreds of hides were there in the shire, what land the king had himself, and what stock upon the land, or what dues he ought to have had from the year from the shire. Also he commissioned them to record in writing how much land his archbishops had, and his diocesan bishops, and his abbots, and his earls, and though I may be prolix and tedious, what or how much each man had, and who was the occupier of land in England, and either land and stock, or how much money it was worth. So very narrowly indeed did he commission them to trace it out, so that there was not a single hide, nor a yard of land, nay, moreover, that not even an ox, nor a cow, nor a swine was left... And not set down in his writs. And all of the recorded particulars were afterwards brought to him.
0: Now, the book helps us get a great insight into the political and economic organization of medieval England. And starting with the counties down to hundreds, which are the next level of subdivision within a county. So in America, in Indiana, at least we have townships, for instance. Uh, the origin of the term hundred is not fully known, and it is not fully consistent. It may have been used to denote the amount of land that can contribute 100 fighting men to the king or sufficient land for a 100 hides. So while we're at it, let's get into some of the units of measurement that tie all this together because this stuff is important. Understanding units of measurement are are important for understanding history. Uh, Now, the hide was to represent the amount of land that could support one household for a year. And this unit of measurement was also used to levy taxes and to determine other feudal obligations such as militia service and food rent. In the Domesday book, we see that one hide typically produces one pound of revenue per year. The pound represented one pound or 240 pence of silver coin. Now, a hide was roughly 120 acres. An acre was not always a consistent measure, nor was a hide, obviously, Uh, but it generally represented the amount of land that one man with one ox could till in one day. And if you've ever been curious about old units of measurements like furlongs, rods, and chains, then go do some extra reading about the history of an acre. It's all about the oxen, baby.
1: <laughs> That's right. So um if we go back to the doomsday book now, each name place and and there's thirteen thousand four hundred and eighteen listed places in the Domesday book it is identified with its tenant in chief, right? And that—that's that's who is directly subordinate to the king and any other lords who held land under the tenant in chief and accounting of the households, property value, other resources like churches and mills. Yeah. So we're going to take a look at a sample entry. Um, this is all found online at the Open Domesday Project. Um, so, you know, we're going to start with looking at uh, the landholders and, and King William himself holds 2,360 places uh, directly under his name where there's no other tenant in chief under him. Uh, the second most common landowner uh, was count Robert of Mortain who owned 994 places. Um, so we're going to, we're going to drill down and look at one of Robert's uh, ownerships, one of his um, pieces of, uh, of land. And so we go to Yorkshire. Um, this is the area like Chris was talking about earlier, kind of in the, in the middle North Um Within Yorkshire, there were two thousand thirty-nine places in the, in that county in that shire, and the largest was Sherburn, which was in the hundred of Barkston, It had two hundred thirty-three households, definitely one of the larger ones. Uh, it, it quickly drips down, and and you know having anything over thirty is actually a fairly large uh, place at this time. Um, if we go into that hundred of Barxton where Sherburn was, was the largest and, and we can find one of count Robert of Mortain's particular, uh, land holdings. And that was in, in the little town of Clifford. And in this land of Clifford, there were just three, three households, three villagers. Um, there was a plow land that had you know, four plowlands, two of the Lord's plow teams, two men's plow teams, There was woodland of of three furlongs long with one mill, and it it held a value of two shillings. And so the annual total annual valuation uh, to the Lord was 10 shillings in the year 1086. And interestingly, the entire Domesday Book not only looks at the year 1086, which is when it it was uh, commissioned, but also what was the state of affairs in 1066 before. William the Conqueror came. And so this land was valued at two pounds, which is much more than 10 shillings uh, in 1066, which partially might give some insight as to the herring of the north that happened here in Yorkshire. In fact, many entries in the farther north where the herring was the worst, it just says the land is desolate in <laughs> 1066. Like it, there is nothing. Um, so in one in of the benefits,
0: one of the benefits of killing everybody is you get to take all their stuff.
1: You do. If, if, if an earl stuff.
0: or nor, you know, if they're bothering you, just kill them and take their stuff. That's usually what
1: happens. Yeah. And then finally the, the owners uh, under the tenant in chief of, of count Robert was, there was a Lord named Nigel of Fossard, who was the Lord in 1086. And it does note that Ligulf was the Lord in 1066. All right, now let's shift gears, and we have a familiar problem, and this is
0: uh, one that our, our founding fathers tried to correct with the peaceful transfer of power with the president, and one reason why January 6th was a problem, for those of mm-hmm. you, uh, uh, it's the successions challenge, succession challenges. So, as we've seen in almost every single episode, you have a strong leader that pops up, like a William, and then when they die, everything falls apart. So, French customs, if you recall, but from way back in episode five, tended to equally divide territory amongst the male sons. However, for the previous 100 years, the king of France under the new Capetian dynasty had taken to the practice of naming the heir as a junior king prior to the death of the king. In some cases, this causes the junior king to rebel against the father to speed up the clock, which we will famously see in in a generation. But the Capetians had not suffered that circumstance yet. Normandy by this time was more French than Viking. And the default inheritance plan was for homelands to go to the oldest son. Any new territory to the second... And then to transfer tangible wealth to the subsequent children. Now it should be noted here as well that wealthy younger sons oft often pursued in life the clergy, where they could not, where they could become a bishop or abbot. So, you know, famously, you have uh, John Lackland, as we'll see. Uh, King John was going to become a priest, but he's really a terrible person, Matt. And so <laughs> he, he he fought to steal all of the lands from his older brothers. Um, and, and I guess it's important to note here why, you know, you the land is wealth. It is a recurring, it is. it's recurring income. And so if you're a younger child, you're just getting sort of whatever's left over in terms of, you know, what wealth and a lot of people spend a lot of money to outclass each other. So you might, you may get nothing. So you're like,
1: Screw it! I'm going to the clergy. I'm going to become a priest. Which, which in its own right could create, generate wealth. Oh right? sure, as, yeah. Uh, as we see, there are you know many landholdings that are held by the bishop or by an abbey or things like they, that. They start so, you know
0: a lot of the breweries were were mm-hmm. you know the friar tuck drunk drunken uh, idea that that's where that kind of comes from, or they just you know flat out took over lands and <laughs> the, the the clergy at this time, Matt, wasn't that much different from the regular folk. They were just sort of like, I'm trying to get power and money any way I can.
1: Yeah. So, so William has three surviving sons, four surviving daughters at this time, uh, at the time of his death. And and surprisingly, you know, with we've, we've heard William's character. Uh, you might think that he would have been prolific with illegitimate children, but actually he wasn't. It seems as if his marriage to um, his wife was actually quite, Uh, quite a a good and close marriage, which um, despite
0: him being an absolute monster, he was actually very religious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So two of his daughters were abbesses or nuns and the other two had been married off to the Duke of Brittany and the counts of Blois. And since, since the situation in France is going to be really important here over the next couple of episodes, it's time to do a quick geography tour uh, and lesson of French duchies and counties, Chris. So, uh, we'll try to get through this pretty quick and, and, you know, follow along as you can. But if, if you imagine the shape of France, it kind of resembles a bulky five-point star on the bottom left foot of the star. You've got the boundary with the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, uh, with the Pyrenees Mountains running across that border. We run up the Atlantic coast uh, to find that peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, that's, you know, the left arm. Uh, and then the tip goes right up to the English Channel, creating that shortest distance uh, to England. We have the right arm that wedges out into modern-day Germany. And then finally, we kind of have the bottom right foot that runs along the Mediterranean for the French Riviera, bordering into Alpine, Italy. So let's look at the major counties and duchies of 11th and 12th century France, where this doesn't cover every single county in France, right? But these are names that you're going to hear over the subsequent episodes. So, Chris, I'll start with the Duchy of Normandy at the top. Um, this territory sits kind of between the left arm and the point it actually isn't where the shortest point is the distance to england um but it's kind of due south from the southern coast of england
0: and then just to the west of normandy making up that left arm is the duchy of Brittany. and we may have mentioned this in an earlier episode but the residents of this area share a common celtic breton heritage b-r-e-t-o-n With Wales and Cornwall, they even speak a language more similar to Welsh than to English or French languages. They
1: were a bit more autonomous, but still pledged uh, fealty to the French king. And then to the east of Normandy, up the coast to that point of the star, we find the county of Flanders. Uh, This region contains Calais, the port city that's the closest point over to Britain and the English Channel, and extends well into what is modern-day Belgium, including important cities like Bruges and Ghent. Now, the right arm of modern
0: France was not a part of medieval France. It was the region of Lorraine and under the realm of the Holy Roman Empire. To the south of Flanders, forming the borderland is the county of Champagne. This is due east of Ile-de-France, which contains Paris
1: and was the direct realm of the king. And southwest of Paris, southeast of Normandy, we find the county of Blois. And west of Blois, we have, uh, and southwest of Normandy, we have the county of Anjou. These are very important regions to be aware of in the next couple of episodes. Now, south of Brittany, Anjou, and Blois, mm-hmm. <laughs> apology to all of our French-speaking
0: listeners, laid the Duchy of Aquitaine. This is a large duchy and contained several
1: counties. The only one worth remembering for now is Poitou. And northeast of Aquitaine, uh, south of Blois and Champagne, we have respectively the Counts of Bourbon. That will be many, many episodes in the future. And the County of Burgundy. We could probably spend an entire episode on the political geography of Burgundy. <laughs> it's so messy, but we'll skip that for now. It's just good to know that it is roughly central west.
0: Now, the right leg is the county of Provence. This is not, at this time, part of the domain of the French king. It is, at this time, subject to the Holy Roman Empire and part
1: of the Burgundian kingdom. See how messy Burgundian is? (laughs) And that left leg of France has the Duchy of Gascony, which has a large Atlantic coastline, and then the county of Toulouse, which is east of Gascony and runs along the Pyrenees. All right. Geography lesson over. Let's hop back to William the Conqueror. Now, his wife was Matilda
0: of Flanders, a strategic but by all accounts loving marriage, which helped create an alliance with Normandy's neighbors to the east who controlled important trade routes between England and the European continent. And by marrying his daughters to the leading men of Brittany and Blois, he tried to secure the regions to his south and west. Now, remember, William still technically first and foremost the Duke of Normandy before anything else. He held lands in the duchy under his fealty to the King of France, Philip I. Now, Philip was a young king, ascended to the throne at about the age of 8 in 1060. Philip's early reign was overseen by the regency of his mother, Anne of Kiev. Yes, Yarselov the Wise we met in last episode, and Baldwin V,
1: Count of Flanders, who happens to be King William's father-in-law. Right. And so William's sons. He's got an oldest son named Robert, nicknamed Kurtos, which is like short pants, <laughs> uh, is Robert Kurtos. And he he did not really get along with his fathers or brothers. Um, he started rebelling against King William uh from the other side, from from Normandy. And so when William died, he initially was thinking of disinheriting Robert, um, but you know, settled on leaving him as the eldest son, the ancestral home and You know, French tradition, namely the Duchy of Normandy. But that gives his second son, William, who is nicknamed Rufus, probably because of red hair or something like that, um, that gives him the Kingdom of England. So, and then finally, the youngest son, Henry, was given vast sums of money to like go buy land for yourself.
0: So King William II had a reign that lasted from 1087 to 1100. It was similar to that of his father, where he fought off rebellions, fighting amongst his brothers, and also focused on taking territory in France. Now, he eventually ruled Normandy as regent when Robert needed money to fight in the first crusade and mortgaged it to him. Now, we're going to talk more about the crusades in the next episode, but William died in a hunting accident and had no wife or children. And was this the the death that was sort of a mysterious hunting accident?
1: Yeah, there's there's you know there's definitely speculation that Henry may have had
0: a hand in this. Yes, anytime you hear a king dies in a hunting accident, there's not much of an investigation, but it's always a little fuzzy based uh when you're a historian looking backwards. Now, the younger brother Henry was with him and quickly moved into action. Wink Wink. <laughs> riding directly to Winchester to seize the treasury and position himself as the next king. He was elected the next day using the symbolic coronation by the Bishop of London to cement his power. Now, Matt, Henry was immediately
1: faced with three political problems. Go yeah, ahead. the earls and barons did not really accept him. There's antagonism from the church, especially the uh, Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury, and then the native Anglo-Saxon population was not really receptive to the new king. And, and these challenges, along with the fact that Henry was actually very well-educated and had a good understanding of law and history, leads him to issuing the Coronation Charter, which we discussed in the opening. Um it is, and also just r- really quick of note, as bad as William the Conqueror might have been, William Rufus was was just horrible. And he didn't have the strength or, you know, kind of command and power that his father had. He was just a bad king and, <clears throat> you know, abused people. And so a lot of that was referenced in that coronation charter of like, I'm not going to do what my brother did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. It was basically him saying, uh, hey, sorry for my a-hole brother, but here's how I'll be better. But He was still very much a Norman King, King Henry I, but he made attempts to utilize older Anglo-Saxon customs to further legitimize his power. As we see, you know, when you're new and you come into England, you act like the old guys and appeal to tradition to solidify your bona fides. Now... During his long reign from 1100 to 1135, he began to solidify the structure of law and government bureaucracy that starts a new chapter in English politics. We'll visit these in greater detail in a future episode. But he took Edith, daughter of King Malcolm III of Scotland, as his wife, and Edith's mother was Margaret from the old house of Wessex born in Hungary to Edward the Exile and sister of Edgar Ethling. So you see those Anglo-Saxon threads. This was proved to be a strategic marriage as it linked Henry's heirs to both Norman and Anglo-Saxon royal bloodlines, and Edith changed her name to the Norman equivalent of Mathilda, uh, or Matilda in modern English, as we see a lot in this era.
1: So Henry's reign is is marked by ongoing battles of land and power in France, and as he struggles to rule England, and his counterpart now uh, King of France, Louis the Sixth, uh, reigning eleven oh eight to eleven thirty seven, he's the first Capetian king of the French to really start making headway and gaining more power. So if you, prior to Louis the Sixth, the kings of France really held power mostly around Paris in that Île de France region, and and the rest of the French lands were controlled largely by the counts and dukes who were nominally, you know, pledged fealty to the king, but held a lot of power in their own right. And so Louis sought to strengthen his power. And then, um, you know, the king of England, who's also the Duke of Normandy, has alliances and interests across France. So that creates a pretty large rivalry. And there's going to be a constant power play going on. We can't really get into all of the details here in our story. That would just take far too long. Um, Henry has a bunch of children. Maybe as close to thirty wow. <laughs> most of them most of them illegitimate. And while his father's illegitimacy was accepted in Normandy in about you know a hundred years earlier, By this time, England definitely has a different culture. And even in Normandy, the legitimacy had become a much more important issue as the church has become uh, more conservative and more powerful and, you know, wants to ensure that, you know, marriages are legitimate and children's are legitimate. So the only child who lived into adulthood that uh, could be the heir under typical you know, rules is William. And he's known as William Adelin, which is kind of a Norman attempt to say the word Athling from the Anglo-Saxon era, which means he's, you know, of princely blood. And then a daughter named Matilda.
0: So William was the heir apparent again, another William uh, born in 1103. And he was married to the next married to the daughter, excuse me, of folk, the fifth of Anjou, who we will discuss in the next episode in 1119. Now, Henry did not want to show homage to King Louis VI, so he negotiated, and this is a combination of diplomacy and military battles to get there, when we say negotiation in the medieval world, uh, for William to pay homage to Louis as a proxy of the Duke of Normandy. Now, things looked headed to be towards a peace and stability when tragedy struck. William died in the tragic white ship incident in 1120 when attempting to cross the English Channel. In November, when the drunken celebrations came to a cold end, upon striking a giant rock there was only one survivor out of 300 aboard the ship i think it was a cook who yep. uh it was a butcher maybe yeah it was or the brewer i think it was the brewer yeah <laughs> um but this white ship in- incident is a pivotal turning point in english history i think uh dan snow starts in the, his Plantagenet book with it because it sets up what's known as the anarchy uh but definitely look up the white ship incident now Matilda was one year older than William and had been married off to Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor in 1114 at the age of 12. Now, she gained practical ruling experience serving as regent of her hus- on her husband's behalf at the times, uh, but Henry died in 1125 and Matilda returned to England. Now, King Henry had married a second wife in hopes of having another male heir, but upon Matilda's return, he contemplated a new option – December 1126, he made the baron's pledge an oath that they would support Matilda as his heir to their throne, which, uh, I don't know, uh, the
1: lady king. A woman? What? 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 How is that, that going to work? How could that so... possibly work? So let's see how it works. That that leads us to the anarchy, and so libertarians don't get too excited. Please, this is not a black and yellow anarchy. <laughs> this is not that type of anarchy. It's it's really another succession crisis and a and a civil war, a good old civil war. So um, this era receives its name as the anarchy from a 19th century historian due to the quote widespread. Red breakdown of law and order but this notion has really been mostly debunked um the period before and after the war isn't necessarily any more chaotic one way or the other you know given given that you you know even with the civil war in place so uh with matilda's return from germany and, and by this time she is uh referring to herself in in documents and all over the place as empress matilda she's she's holding that name from her Uh, From her husband, her dead husband. Now her father looks to find an acceptable new husband for her. So strategically, this leads to a marriage with Jeffrey Plantagenet. Uh, You've heard Chris mention the Plantagenet several times. This is where we get the name. Um, he is the son of Folk, Count of Anjou. Yeah, you might remember this name from earlier in the episode. Uh, King Henry has previously re- arranged for his heir, William Adeline, to marry Folk's daughter. Now he turns and goes the other way to get his, his daughter to marry uh, Folk's son. Uh, when William died on that white ship incident, King Henry tried to get the marriage dowry returned, which led to a big rift between them. And to spite Henry, Fulk then had his next daughter, marry the son of Robert Kurtos. Yep, he's still alive, making succession plans all the more difficult. So Folk and Henry eventually make up. The other marriage gets divorced, and Empress Matilda marries Geoffrey, who is, believe it or not, actually 11 years younger than Matilda, his bride. Uh, to make it even more complex, Geoffrey becomes Count of Anjou in his own right in 1129. Uh, we've got a strained marriage; they don't really get along very well. But despite all that, um, you know, Empress Matilda sides with her new young husband, Geoffrey, in trying to press claims and consolidate power and loyalty in Normandy, even when that is against her own father's wishes. Now, uh,
0: what's the worst thing that can happen in the middle of this mess? It's Henry's
1: gonna die. <laughs> In 1135,
0: <laughs> he didn't have a male heir, so by this time, Geoffrey and Matilda did have two young sons, and despite tension with King Henry, he had named his daughter as heir to the throne. A succession battle emerged between Empress Matilda and Stephen of Blois. Stephen's father, although Stephen and a veteran of the First Crusade, was married to Adela, the daughter of William the Conqueror. Now, the civil war that emerged on both ends of the English Channel is an interesting story, but we can't take too much time to get into depth because Stephen moved quickly and was able to secure the treasury support of sufficient nobles and was crowned King Stephen as at Westminster Abbey three weeks after the death of Henry I. Now, Matilda was close to victory in 1141 and had King Stephen imprisoned though, and was able to get enough support from the church and nobility to take the crown, was he, not able
1: to get enough crown. Oh, excuse support. me, was
0: not able yep. enough to, to get the crown. Now, King Stephen's wife, guess what her name was? Yes, Matilda, uh, along with his loyal barons, were able to respond militarily with effect. Now, Empress Matilda ended up losing her gains, negotiated the release of Stephen, and a stalemate ensued over the next few years. Now, her son, who is one of my favorite characters in history, known as Henry Fitz Empress. And I didn't realize this before, Matt, but Fitz is the same as son of and was common of a Norman convention. And there's one of the names like Fitz Walter or
1: Fitz something. Fitz, Fitz that's, Osborne, Fitz Walter, yeah, Fitz that's Roger, like, they're, they're all over the yeah, place. Yeah, and, and
0: Fitz something is like designated just for the heir uh, to the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, but Henry Fitz Empress mounted campaigns of his own at 1147 and 1149, and eventually Negoti- a negotiated settlement was made between the parties where Stephen remained king, but the crown would be passed to Henry instead of Stephen's son upon his death. Now, Stephen died in 1154, putting the official end to of the anarchy with the coronation of King Henry II, the first avenge a- – aven- I can't ever say this. Angevin. Name. Angevin, a Plantagenet king of England, and I
1: can't wait to talk about King Henry II because he's a total nut. Yeah. Uh, well, and, but and, you know, we, we – effective. If- when he makes those campaigns of his own in 1147 and 1149, while his you know Empress Matilda is still trying to uh, to run things, um, it, it's pretty funny because he, he like what, you know rounds up some mercenaries of his own is like, hey, I'm here to fight, right? And, and um, it's it's uh, initially not very well taken, and he's not very successful, but ultimately, uh, and he's a young hot punk kid at this point, he, like you know how 18 like 18 years old or something
0: acolytes of trump will talk about what a virile man he is how much energy has he's up at 6 a.m and he goes to bed at midnight and like that was actually king henry he was he was uh he's a fascinating individual and it's gonna be a great episode when we talk about him in the future but we need to shift gears to set up before we can get there some other stuff matt
1: Yeah, that's right. So in our next episode, we're going to take a detour yet again and and head this time over to Italy and to the Levant, uh, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Holy Land, uh, you know, modern day Israel, uh, Lebanon, Syria, etc., where we're going to look at the whole dynamics of, um, you know, the Byzantine Empire, the Muslims, the uh, Pope, Italy, and all sorts of good stuff as we set up the Crusades, which help link us to the French, the Normans, and the English, and ultimately we will be ready to get to the Great Charter, the Magna Carta, uh, in the year 1215 in about two episodes.
0: Well, that does it for this episode of the History of Modern Politics. Again, if you enjoyed this, then please spread the word. That's the best way to help this podcast grow. Uh, This is a labor of love. We're both enjoying doing this and Thank you so much if you've written in and said how much you're enjoying the episode. We hadn't had much feedback until this past week when we got a brand new logo and people said they both like that and the podcast. So I had done the first logo and then I had somebody do this logo, which is why this one looks... you. The first one was okay and then you saw the new one and you're like, wow, that's what a good logo looks like for this podcast. So uh, thank you to Good Cuff Designs and Brendan Good Cuff for doing a great job as always Uh, and we appreciate you. Make sure you go check out the outline, the reading list. There's so many great books on this period that I've recommended in our reading lists. So you can watch the video. You can get the, these shows ad-free and months in advance if you go to historyofmodernpolitics.com and sign up there, or if you're a We Are Libertarians patron of $10 a month or more. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And thank you so much to our listeners. We will see you in a couple of weeks.